Do you ever withhold information from your insurer to save a few rands on your premium? If you do, you're not alone. A recent study in America found that at least one in five people admit to withholding information on their life insurance application. But it's just not worth it, as we're going to find out in today's discussion. Um, welcome to the fourth episode in our insurance podcast series hosted by Life Insurer FMI in partnership with Cover Magazine, in which we're addressing various aspects of life insurance. So I'm Tony Fanica, the editor of Cover Magazine, and joining me today again are personal finance expert Mapalo Maku, welcome, and Brad Turin, the chief executive of Life Insurer FMI. So um, let's start with you, Mapalo. Um, why do you think it's so important to make full disclosure to your insurer, and what happens if you don't tell the truth? Sure, Tony. You know what? When you get into a contract with your insurer, your policy is accepted based on the information you provide, okay? Whether you think the information is material or not, it is important to disclose all, and I must stress, all, 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 all information. Because the premiums are calculated on the information that you have provided to your insurer. So it's, it's, it's a relationship, right? It's, and it's based on trust that whatever information you have given us, it is correct and true. If, let's say, a claim stage you are found to have withheld some information, your claim may be turned down. And contrary to popular belief, uh, Tony, insurers do pay premiums. They do pay claims. So just do the right thing. Do the right thing and disclose as much information as possible because you don't want your claim getting turned down. Thanks, Mopal. Brad, from an insurer perspective, how often do clients actually not disclose all the information um, or um, uh, in, in, disclose the wrong information? I suppose the answer is less often than you assume. Um, and, and maybe I want to make a, a slight distinction here between when we talk about insurance fraud and other levels of non-disclosure. You know, we, we default to assuming the worst case scenario, and I, I like to rather give everyone the benefit of the doubt always. You know, the outright fraudster who's setting out to, to kind of, you know, lie up front, to be honest, there's not much you can do about that. Where, where we find it much more common is in, is in what we call non-disclosure, which in English is a customer not giving us information that we believe we need up front. The difficulty there again is this, is this gap of awareness. Because often the information is not disclosed either because the customer doesn't remember it or because they didn't think it was important. And it's the, this, this, and this difference of opinion on what is important and what isn't. And really it's because, you know, as Mampala said, we, we look at all of the information up front when we're deciding around premiums and cover and terms. And it, the safest thing is to disclose everything. The second issue that we often find is just around people returning back to work. So from an FMI point of view, most of the claims we pay are income protection, which means you are paying people an income for as long as they're unable to work. The really complex area there and the subjective area there is at what point should those claims stop being paid because you should be in a position to return to work. And that's probably the greater challenge we find is having some of those discussions and those debates. And and I think that, you know, you mentioned earlier the number of people who are willing to not give the insurers the full information. It goes back to this trust gap we speak about over and over again. It creates this almost adversarial approach where the average individual assumes that the insurer is out to get them and out to find a reason not to pay a claim, which almost gives you permission to be less honest with them. 
the sooner we can break that down, the sooner we move from an adversarial approach to a cooperative one and we can actually work together. Yes, I, I think, I mean, it is so important. You spoke about the trust and then there's also obviously the understanding for the client to understand what it is that must be disclosed, etc. So in, in, I mean, in our social media-driven world, we often hear stories about people who feel that they've been treated unfairly by insurers where the insurer might have um, declined a claim because there was non-disclosure. Um, like the, the case a while ago of a gentleman that was killed. Uh, he was shot and killed and his life claim was initially not paid because of um, the, he hadn't disclosed the fact that he had a diabetic uh, condition. How do you see that? I mean, so social media is an amazing thing with, with good and bad. You know, it's, it's an extremely powerful tool to share ideas and raise awareness of an issue. The downside of social media is how do you have an extremely complex, emotional, nuanced discussion in 200 characters? Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, we sometimes lose a lot of the depth to the conversation. So these kind of claims in particular are so difficult for an insurance company to, to assess. And, and we, we do. We try and do the right thing. And I mean, I maybe kind of cover three points. The first one is, how do we, strictly speaking, approach non-disclosure? Because I think the assumption with customers is that it's only around whether that non-disclosure is linked to the reason you're claiming. For us, it's not that. We almost try and go back in time and say, did if we had known the information you're giving us now, as we believe we should have, at the time you applied, what would we have done then? And then we would relook at that decision. And that decision might have been, well, nothing changed. Or we may have declined your cover altogether, or we may have excluded a particular condition, or we may have charged you a higher premium. We then look at the claim that's happening now as if that had been the case from the beginning. And, and although that's a, it's an unemotive, rational approach, you then end up with a situation occasionally where a claim gets declined for something that's completely unrelated to the reason for claiming. And strictly speaking, that's correct. But that's when you also have to start applying a values judgment and start to apply a little, bring a little bit more empathy into the situation and recognize that there, it isn't a black and white situation. This isn't a legalistic approach. And, and that's really the approach we try and take is how do we look at it through the customer's lens? How do we give someone the benefit of the doubt? And Because you cannot assume that customers are as informed as we are about what information they need to share. I think the final point is is just that what people don't realize as well is, is that the responsibility of the life insurer is not just to that single customer. It's around protecting the integrity of your entire customer base. And when you start paying claims that you shouldn't be paying, what you're actually doing is punishing everybody else. Because somewhere down the line, the quality of their cover may deteriorate or their premiums may go up. And this is a really difficult decision to make where we're balancing a number of different factors. And, and I, I really believe the insurance industry gets it right way more often than it gets it wrong. And as, as product providers, we do everything we can to find a reason to pay a claim. Yeah, indeed. But um, finally, if you feel your claim has been wrongfully declined, um, what steps should uh, clients take and what is the process um, to try and resolve that matter? The correct process, not the social media process. Now, so social media is often used just as a, as a tool to kind of put pressure and bully um, and not often necessarily to have a sensible conversation. And as customers, you have so many options. I mean, first and foremost, you have your advisor that is there to be your advocate at every single step of the way and, and help you have the discussion with a life insurer. And that's where I believe it starts. 
Almost every life insurer has internal complaints processes, committees that are set up to look at these things. They have they manage the conflicts internally by making sure there's a different set of people that are looking at the complaint as opposed to the people who made the claim decision in the first place. And ultimately, if you don't get a satisfactory answer, the ombud is set up to be independent and to look after the rights of the customers. So I think as a customer, you have way more power and influence than you realize if you're feeling aggrieved. Mm. It's very interesting. So many things in the insurance industry. Which every time I, I, I talk about these things and I read about them, becomes so important, the role of the advisor. So um, that's another podcast between us, uh, myself, Tony Fanica, guests Mapalo Maku and Brad Turin. We talked about insurance fraud and the big takeaway, I think, for me was um, when you're taking out a policy with an insurer or your life circumstances change, rather give them too much information than too little. That way, when it comes to claim time, everyone's happy and, and on the same page. And ask questions if you need to ask questions if you don't understand anything that um, you have to disclose. So till next time, uh, goodbye from the three of us. Thank you.